Okay, okay, stop, 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 stop. What piece of music do you think you just heard the first few notes of? Obviously, that's the opening theme from the movie Jaws, right? Wrong. I'm just having a bit of fun. I, I know that's not our normal opening music on Forever LDS, but I wanted to show you an example of music that may have inspired other music. I love classical music. Sorry if that bores you. Classical music is probably an acquired taste. Actually, I, I think every piece of music is an acquired taste. Most people, even when they listen to a great pop song, don't really love it the first time they hear it. It grows on them and, and soon becomes a favorite song. Same thing happens with the Beethoven Symphony. You learn to love it by listening to it a few times. But a pop song is a lot shorter, so your brain wraps around all the nuances much faster. And interestingly, you can over-listen to a pop song. You've had that experience, right? And the thing can become highly obnoxious in a relatively short period of time. The greater the piece of music, the less likely that is to happen. Your appreciation will only grow and expand, and the nuances will become ever more penetrating to your gifts of creative comprehension. Okay, I'm not here to convert you to classical music, but listen to a bit more of this piece of music. Okay, so it's not Jaws. It's actually the beginning of the fourth movement of Dvorak's Symphony No. 9, better known as the New World Symphony. If I were to play you segments of a classical piece called The Planets by Gustav Holst, you'd hear a lot of similar themes from Star Wars, but I'll spare you that experience today. None of this really has anything to do with the topic I wanted to discuss today. But hey, it's my podcast, and I can touch on anything I want, anything I find interesting, and I will. The world is my oyster, and I hope it's yours too. I think you're going to like this podcast. I, I hope they just get better and better, both in content and technical quality. In some of the recent podcasts, I can tell, at least, that I've been fighting this terrible cold, especially the T.C. Christensen interview. We'll see if that's any better today. The point is, I hunger and crave for knowledge and understanding. Yet I confess that despite this craving, I cannot get enough. You guys, my readers and listeners, are often my greatest source of inspiration. I love getting links to topics related to something we discussed, and my knowledge expands even further. But with all the stuff I fit into my head, I still depend wholly upon the gift of the Holy Ghost, wholly upon the Holy Ghost and the light of Christ, to put all knowledge in its proper perspective. Otherwise, it's so easy to miscategorize and discombobulate everything you learn, and it can push you further away from God rather than drawing you closer to Him. The key is repentance and humility, recognizing that I know so very little that it's actually embarrassing. Sort of like what Moses said in Moses chapter 1, verse 10, Now for this cause I know that man is nothing, which thing I had never supposed. 
Later on in the same chapter, it says, And it came to pass that Moses spake unto the Lord, saying, Be merciful unto thy servant, O God, and tell me concerning this earth, and the inhabitants thereof, and also the heavens, and then thy servant will be content. And the Lord God spake unto Moses, saying, The heavens, they are many, and they cannot be numbered unto man, but they are numbered unto me, for they are mine. And as one earth shall pass away, and the heavens thereof, even so shall another come. And there is no end to my works, neither to my words. These verses are staggering. The heavens are many? What does that mean? Heavens, plural. Are we hinting at the uh, latest cosmological theories of multiverses? Cannot be numbered unto man. We're not talking about planets or stars or even galaxies. It's heavens. I thought anything could be numbered if it's to the nth, nth, nth degree, but no, according to God, to man, the heavens cannot be numbered. Because apparently we don't have the instruments, the math, or even the intellectual capability to grasp this number. As one earth shall pass away, and the heavens thereof, even so shall another come. Okay, I'm lost. And yet, I'm not lost. I know just enough about astronomy and cosmology to know that something about that verse and all the rest rings extraordinarily profound and true. Listen, in the 1840s, men could only count with the naked eye about 3,000 stars in the heavens in the northern hemisphere. Rudimentary telescopes started to appear in the 1600s. By the 1840s, nobody would have said that they were so numerous as to be uncountable. It wasn't until 80 years later that Edwin Hubble discovered distant galaxies, all containing countless numbers of stars. We're talking about billions and trillions. And now, the number of galaxies themselves we can't even count. Also, numbering in the billions and trillions. Listen, we could do a, a fun exegesis, uh, that means a verse-by-verse -verse analysis of Scripture, of how profound modern revelation truly is, as well as focus on dozens of other sections of sacred writ, ancient and modern, and undoubtedly we will. Still, I'll feel like we only lightly scratched the surface on everything there is to know on just this topic alone. Anyone in the field of astronomy and cosmology will tell you that in just the last 10, 20 years, we've been beset by an absolute explosion of new information that has forced us to rewrite all the textbooks. We can't even fully depend on Einstein's equation of E equals mc squared anymore because it's been demonstrated that even the speed of light is not entirely dependable and can have distinctive variables depending upon the nature of the space-time it crosses. I feel, I sense, that the Lord is breathlessly excited to reveal more to us, so much more that he has ever revealed before. He just needs us to appreciate and master what he's already given us. And obviously, enough of us have to be willing to ask for more. I think the Lord's enthusiasm to give us more exceeds that of any of us to receive it. The rising generation might change all that, 
you young people, and some of us old people, I mean, we're not dead yet, may be the ones who change that dynamic, usher in an era when the Lord pours out greater understanding. With understanding comes power. The key is it has to be in the Lord's time and often under his conditions. Too many people go off the rails wanting the Lord to give them meat before they can digest the milk. Are you living the gospel basics? Then don't curse yourself by asking for more than you are ready to receive, but develop the hunger, the drive to want to get to the place the Lord would have us be, all in the Lord's good time. I mentioned in other podcasts that I really enjoy studying just about every area of learning that a person can ponder. And a fun way to do this when you have a large family and a novel to write that already demands that you consume thick books of research, as well as a weekly podcast to record, documentaries are one of my favorite resources on National Geographic and Discovery and Science and the American Heroes Channel and the Smithsonian, etc., etc. But you gotta be careful. You gotta be on your toes if you watch this stuff because, for example, the average show you watch on subjects like science or the cosmos or the universe contain about 50% utter nonsense. The rest is gold. But so much is data that is taken in by worldly minds and spewed back by worldly paradigms that you have to know what it is that you're watching. Okay, I've never done an exact analysis on exactly what percentage is nonsense. Obviously, I feel enough of what such documentaries reveal is exhilarating that I watch this stuff on the edge of my seat and drink in everything there is to learn. But it's still fascinating how science in the 20th and 21st centuries has inescapably gravitated into this framework of conception that completely negates the concept of God, a higher power. They accept, almost as a tenant of a strange new religion, that everything that we measure or observe in the cosmos must be defined as a random act of nature governed by the laws of physics and math and completely divorced from any hint of something beyond these natural observable phenomenon, such as a force, anything that they cannot measure or comprehend within the scientific method. It's a fundamental rudimentary assumption that science and faith cannot mingle and should not mingle. It just muddies up everything if you try to mingle them. We got to go by what we can observe, what we can measure, and what we can prove. I understand some of that. This allows scientists from every background and religion to share ideas based on common denominators, a common playing field. But the rule, spoken or unspoken, in fact, in recent decades, definitely unspoken, is that if you have any kind of personal belief system, keep it to yourself. Don't allow even the subtlest hint to suggest that your personal beliefs may have skewed your scientific analysis, or you'll be ostracized and likely tossed out of the academic community on your ear. This is definitely a new thing. After the Renaissance and up until the 20th century, scientists were still permitted to co-mingle their perceptions of faith with their scientific disciplines. 
Today, at the levels of higher academia, you're just better off if you claim to be agnostic or, better yet, atheist. It ensures that your scientific observations are clean and unencumbered by metaphysical hubris and claptrap. The problem is that a complete divorce between religion and science leaves in its wake an unprecedented arrogance in the community of science. And scientists themselves, simply because of the carnal and devilish nature of that being known as man and woman, appear to proclaim that they themselves are a new breed of prophets, the dictators and definers of moral rectitude for the world at large, and as such free to dictate those policies and commandments that should govern us all. And often they resort to the same tactics as prophets of old, prophets like Jeremiah and Samuel the Lamanite and Nephi, son of Nephi, and Mormon. In short, they take it upon themselves to scare the living daylights out of us. They tell us if we don't change our behaviors, if we don't adopt new policies and protocols for the future, we are doomed. Except that in the case of this new breed of prophets formed within the crucibles of math and physics and every other branch of science, their form of repentance and transformation is very different from that of Jeremiah or Samuel or Mormon. They view all of us as biological beings— the products of natural selection and evolution and the combination and recombination of molecules and atoms that date back to the first microseconds after the Big Bang, rather than literal children of God, the offspring of a loving Father, whose entire motivation for creating the universe and all that we see and experience and learn was set in place to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. Why has he done this? And, and this is incomprehensible to me. Because it brings our Father in heaven joy. He receives joy, real, pure joy and happiness. This is the thing that energizes his reason to exist merely to nurture us, his children, ever forward toward greater planes of success and loftier pinnacles of understanding in order to become like him, receiving greater power, principalities, and dominions. To God, the pie is not small. It's limitless, and we can all equally share in the spoils of this vast universe. What drives him is love. That kind of love is beyond our mortal capabilities of discernment. We cannot wrap our head around such selflessness. God does his best to provide us with temporal experiences to help us begin to understand, such as the opportunity to have families and children and grandchildren, to lose ourselves in service to others, and by so doing, suddenly discover that we have somehow changed our very nature, emotionally, spiritually, and I believe even physically. Nevertheless, I think a full comprehension of the kind of love and joy that our Father in Heaven feels for each one of us is something we can never fully grasp. 
Since the dawn of time, as far as I've heard from some genealogists, we can estimate that there have been over 100 billion souls born to this earth. How can God possibly love, even, I mean, to say nothing of knowing the names of that many? How can he feel that kind of commitment? We can't, we can't grasp this. And without the guidance of the Spirit, you may not even accept it. It's certainly not logical. But with the Spirit, yeah, it's true. It can be confirmed to you. A vision of the personal overwhelming love that God and His beloved Son, our Redeemer, feel for you and me individually. This idea, this intelligence, can be transmitted into your mind and into the cells of your body. I don't know how. I don't know why. I can't define the processes by, by which it is communicated, but I know it. I've felt it, and I can testify to the reality of it. So what happened to our scientists? How did it happen over the last century that this entire branch of human learning seems to have devolved into a state of committed atheism? Okay, I'm, I'm speaking generally, and I think, I hope, that many folks could point out individuals with profound perspectives that don't fall into this category, and that such individuals still find themselves functioning at the top tiers of their fields and at the cusp of the newest and greatest discoveries. But many of the documentaries I watch on various educational channels give me no inkling whatsoever that this is the case. The worldview of the most celebrated scientists seems utterly dominated by the perspective that our Earth is doomed. The universe itself is doomed, and as a species, we are completely at the mercy of natural processes and inalterable cycles of creation and destruction, and there ain't a darn thing we can do about any of it. Here's some quotes from a recent episode of a single educational series that I watched describing the universe in which we live. We live on a volatile planet in a violent universe that constantly wants to destroy us. Our peaceful, plentiful planet protects us, but not forever. There are dangers everywhere and troubles ahead. We are destined to face asteroid impacts and solar flares and supernova and black holes and colliding galaxies and many other angry and violent events, and the Earth is in the crosshairs. Usually, those are the kind of statements they make just before they go to commercial break, just to keep us watching the next segment to discover what in blue blazes they might be talking about. I recognize that the motive behind many of these documentaries is to dramatize this information that many may feel otherwise is going to come across as dry and esoteric, but in the process of dressing it up in a bit of hyperbolic flair, they inevitably create a sense of pessimism and unadulterated terror about the future that many susceptible viewers cannot avoid and often cannot shake off. Listen to a few more quotes, just from this single episode. Mass extinctions are going to happen. We live in the quiet time between mass extinctions. They have happened before on planet Earth, and they will happen again. You could be doing your laundry tomorrow, 
Look up in the sky, and all of a sudden there's a burst of radiation raining down from the heavens. This radiation rips off the Earth's ozone layer, creating a toxic smog, and exposing us to the sun's deadly rays. Cosmic killers prowl the universe, threatening to wipe out the Earth, pushing life to the edge of extinction. They will strike again, and it could happen before you finish watching this show. Holy criminy, but there's more. We're here for a brief moment, and there will be disasters in the future, and one of them will destroy us. There's a one in 5,000 chance that the Earth will be struck by an asteroid in the next 100 years that will wipe out humanity. It could happen in the next 10 minutes. The last 10 massive asteroid events to hit our atmosphere were undetected by any telescope. It's as inevitable as the sun rising. Wow. Wow! <laughs> What's our motivation to even get up in the morning if that kind of destiny awaits us? Is God even mentioned in any of these scenarios? Nope. God doesn't even come into the equation. See, I'll be honest with you. There was great stuff in this episode, right alongside all the rubbish. This episode actually covered all the mass extinctions that our Earth has experienced over the past four or five billion years, and all the chemical changes brought about by these extinctions that allowed for the oxygen-rich atmosphere that we now enjoy, and made it possible for the rise and progress of mankind. It was fascinating, actually, when I applied the things I already know about the earth through my theology. I gained an incredible appreciation for how God has governed the creation and development of this planet through its various phases so that those beings he created in his image could thrive and fulfill their mortal destiny. However, to come to this understanding, I had to totally listen with a grain of salt, cull through all of the nonsense, and actually come away not with a sense of pessimism and doom and gloom, but a sense of wonder for the miracle of creation with a loving God at the helm. Here's the last quote, actually a combination of quotes. Eventually, the universe will win and we will face extinction. In two billion years, the sun will expand and be 15% brighter than it is today. If we don't do anything, within two billion years, we will be toast. The chance of this happening is 100%. Will our species go on? The only chance of survival will belong to those species who can leave our planet and populate other worlds. Our intelligence is our greatest asset. Two billion years, okay? Not a lot of us will be around to witness the Earth as it's subsumed by an expanding sun in two billion years, at least uh, not in our present mortal state. But the idea that this show is trying so hard to sell is the stark urgency of saving our species by funding an expansion of scientific know-how, creating opportunities to travel to other planets and solar systems and ensure the survival of mankind as a species. Hey, I'll be honest, if someone handed me the reins of international financing, my natural inclination would be to fund just about anything this community of scientists wants to fund. Mankind's imagination, its very soul, I believe, 
thrives on dreaming these kinds of dreams. We need such visions to propel us to the highest potential of achievement that our mortal souls can possibly achieve. But I think my motivation to pursue this process would be entirely different from those of the scientists who made verbal contributions to this particular episode. I don't need to make people soil their shorts to nurture this kind of ambition within the human mind. I don't feel I need to tell folks that we need to create better telescopes that can analyze the atmospheres of exoplanets beyond our solar system in search of extraterrestrial life and to explore and gather information from places even deeper into our solar system in order to avoid an inevitable mass extinction. We need to do this because I believe the Lord commanded us to strive for ever loftier understandings of the cosmos. All knowledge we gain in mortality rises with us in the resurrection. We follow such pursuits for the purposes of our eternal benefit. The exercise of our brains and the exercise of the full capacity of our technological innovation should be the driving motivation, not fear not pessimism, and in particular, not nurturing the kind of attitude that might make our brothers and sisters in the family of God irreversibly depressed and more likely to indulge in living for today, indulging in every possible hedonism and vice because, well, tomorrow it's all gone, right? Science assures us that mass extinction is unavoidable and bound to overwhelm our planet anyway, so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die in a massive collision with a rogue planet or a solar flare. Brothers and sisters, God is at the helm. He always was at the helm, and he always will be at the helm. Unless God sends it, no asteroid is going to hit us. Unless God commands it, no pulse from a neutron star is going to boil away our oceans and fry the planet. Unless God wills it, no seam is going to open up in the crust of the earth and spew forth great oceans of lava that destroy 98% of the living organisms we know today. Not going to happen. How do I know that? How can we sleep at night with even the possibility that any religious perspective is totally wrong? Oh, we can. I promise you, sleep well. Sleep soundly. Start with the basics. Confirm the fundamental questions. As our Heavenly Father advises, be still and know that I am God. How can it be that easy when so many people don't seem to have any idea whatsoever that God even exists. My suspicion? They aren't asking. It's not even in their minds to ask such a silly question. They've already convinced themselves that there's nobody out there to answer such a question. Before they'll even submit to pray, even pay a single passing glance at the brass serpent, as in the days of Moses, they'd rather die. And yet, for some reason, God makes you ask. He makes you earn this bit of knowledge for yourself, and the experience is so personal, so unique, that you can't really even share it. You can just plead with people, 
please believe me when I tell you that you can know. So that's what I do. That's what I'm doing. And that's really as far as I can go. It's as far as anybody can go. In the end, it's all in your hands alone. I love you guys. I love everybody who sits there and, and listens to me prattle on with words that I hope and pray might contain some shred of wisdom. May the Lord bless all of you. If your life is like mine, the mere knowledge that God is at the helm doesn't solve all your problems. It just gives you a reason to go on, to endure. So, with that knowledge firmly in hand, please, everyone, stay close to the Lord. Trust Him. Let Him rule your individual kingdoms. And I promise, I promise, in the light of experience, those kingdoms will prosper. They will thrive and multiply and survive. I give you, for what it's worth, my undeviating word. This is Chris Heimerdinger. Have a grand and happy new year. Over and out.